David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Elliot came girlless today. Well, let me explain. There will be a lovely lady in studio, Alicia Harris. She's running a little bit late, but as a former track and field athlete, that seems only normal, right? Exactly. So... For those of you who are hoping to have the female the first part of the show, stick around, and she'll be the second part of the show. Sounds Does good. Does that make sense? Makes sense. What is she running what they call the trail or the anchor? The anchor. Is that what it is, the relay? The relay. She's the anchor. Okay. Bill For White will be the starter. No, no better way than to start off with Bill White, former uh, St. Louis Cardinal, San Francisco Giant, Philadelphia Philly, National League Commissioner. I remember his playing career well. You probably don't. No, I remember him as president of National League. Yeah, I keep calling National League commissioner. I'm National League president. But yeah, when when the leagues had presidents before Bud Selig took all over. So we're going to get to the interview in a few. Uh, I wanted to thank the person who wrote the article about me in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. It was in May 8th, which came out yesterday, which I still haven't seen because they mail it. And you get it like four days later in the suburbs. So there's there's no libel going on here? It said nice things about you? From what I heard from people who read it, it said nice things. I think they talked to you and what, talked to some other people. Was this in the fiction part of the law bulletin or is this? I don't know. What part's fiction? What's not fiction? I, I don't know. You, you tell me you deal in that world all the time. I'm not sure what's reality and what's not in the, the wonderful world of law. It depends who's saying it. If it's the other <laughs> side, it's not reality. If it's you, it's reality. I got you. But I know our producer is queuing up the interview. He'll let us know when it's ready. Okay, we're all set. Let's get right to the interview with Bill White. On the phone, we have former St. Louis Cardinal, San Francisco Giant. He also broadcasts for the New York Yankees. He was president of the National League. Bill White, how you doing, Bill? I'm doing great, great. You left out the Philadelphia Phillies. Well, that's all right. I, I, <laughs> uh, that's where I got hurt. But I did play there, and I like the city uh, so much that uh, I still live uh, uh, right outside the city. So are you a Phillies fan, or are you a Giants fan, Yankees fan, Cardinals fan, or just a fan of baseball? Well, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm retired, and uh, I really don't follow baseball that much. Uh, most of my guys, obviously, are retired. Uh, I spend some time with some of the uh, older guys. Uh, in fact, the guys who got me out, uh, I see Bob Gibson every once in a while. I see Sandy uh, Koufax every once in a while. We see Jim Cotton. We see... Uh, we, uh, we just see people who are, are our age and who we played against for the most part. Now, I grew up in St. Louis, and I can remember Harry Carey broadcasting, and coming to the plate was William Dakova White. <laughs> and, and I've never before or since heard a middle name. What? Where did the name Dakova come from? I don't know. I asked my aunt once who named me, and she said it's in the Bible someplace. D-E-C-O-U-V-O-U-G-H. I shortened it to D-E-K-O-V-A. 
uh, because I, I have a hard time uh, spelling <laughs> the other one. But uh, she told me that, and this, you know, she that was years ago. Uh, I, I've never found it in the Bible. Okay. Because Harry, when he was broadcasting in Chicago, he used to take the players' names and try to spell them backwards or pronounce them. I don't know if he ever tried that with the Kova. No, I would not. I won't even spell it the way she said she spelled it. <laughs> I shortened it up quite a bit. Now, you you came up to baseball at a time after Jackie Robinson had broken the color barrier in 47. And so you were like the next half generation. But it was almost as if you were among the pioneers of African-Americans in Major League Baseball. Is that fair to say? Well, you could say that. I think that uh, the Robinsons era, uh, when they got players from the Negro Leagues, they were a little bit older. They were in their 30s. And I think uh, I got there about six years later or so. And uh, I think Frank Robinson was there, Veda Pinson. uh, Willie had come in in I think 1954. I came uh, in 1956. So I, that's probably a, a, a good. Uh, that's probably right that we were the middle group. Yes, right after Jackie. But it wasn't significantly easier for you than it was for, say, Jackie Robinson or Larry Doby or any of that initial uh, group who integrated the big leagues. No, I think it was easier. Uh, it wasn't easy, but it was easier than. Uh, Jackie, for instance, who uh, uh, you know, the Dodgers did not accept him they, until they found out they needed him to win a pennant. Uh, and I'm sure that you know spring training he couldn't go to. They had to go over to Cuba. Uh, and Larry, of course, uh, I'm closer to him because I was raised in Warren, Ohio, and, and uh, probably the first major league game I saw was in Cleveland uh, as a patrol boy. I was very young, went up there. And I kidded Larry all the time because I remember he got hit on the head and fly ball in the uh, left center field, and he went over and called for it, and Dale Mitchell tried to call him off, and the ball hit Doby <laughs> and his head. And and I kid, kidded Larry. Larry's one of my favorite people. But he and Jackie and the earlier uh, black players, including some who were brought up just to um, say we have a black player, uh, they went through hell. And by the time uh, Frank Robinson, myself, and uh, Veda, and other players about our age got there, uh, we were at least were accepted as as uh, members of the team. But the players who, like like Jackie, like Larry, had been in the Negro leagues, they didn't have to go through that minor league experience that that you and you know hundreds of others did, especially down in the deep South. Not that it was a whole lot better elsewhere geographically, but it you sort of knew when you went down to the Deep South, it wasn't going to be easy. You know, I didn't know that. <laughs> I, I was I was born in Florida, but we went north at the age of three, Steel Mills Town, Warren, Ohio, and I was uh, went to integrated schools. Uh, we had uh, integrated uh, playgrounds for the most part, except uh, blacks couldn't uh, swim, even in Ohio, uh, only on Mondays, and then they cleaned out the pool, but you didn't have that overt uh, uh, segregation and discrimination. So when I went down uh, to Danville, my first year, I was the only black uh, player in the league. I didn't realize uh, what I'd gotten into, and it was tough. But, you know, uh, you, I took a different slant. I looked at those people who were yelling these things as animals, uneducated animals, and I just took it out on the, bar, on the baseball. 
and had a decent uh, a decent year down there. And the other thing I'll say is that not uh, at any time during that year, and this was 1953, I was just out of college or after spent my first year in college, uh, not one player, and I was the only black player in the league, but not one white player ever said anything derogatory to me. Were the hotels segregated when you came up oh. like they were when Jackie and certain restaurants you couldn't eat at, or that eased up when you came into the league? Uh, are you talking major leagues or minor leagues? In the major leagues. Uh, no, there were some places that, uh, as I remember, we couldn't play, uh, couldn't couldn't stay. I think there was a hotel in uh, Philadelphia. There was a hotel in Cincinnati. There was a hotel in uh, Chicago. And obviously uh, St. Louis. Uh, and even, uh, I remember, as a youngster, just got of high school, we played an exhibition game. Uh, in San Francisco, in, in San Francisco, and also in L.A., and we couldn't stay at the hotels there. And this was 1953, so uh, uh, it was fairly wide, widespread. Do you think the generation that followed you of African American players had a true appreciation of what you and the previous uh, Negro League players went through? No, uh, and I don't think they should. You know, they, it, it, things have changed. I remember once. Uh, at Yankee Stadium, uh, I was sitting around uh, uh, with a former uh, player in the uh, Negro Leagues who uh, was taking care of the Yankee uniforms, and I was listening to him tell how they would play three or four games uh, a day, how uh, they would uh, have the old dirty uniforms, and how they had to find a place to eat. And as I was talking to him, uh, Willie Randolph came by, Chris Chambliss came by, uh, uh, even, uh, well, there are a lot of the older players with the Yankees and, uh, came by and were listening to them. And, uh, they certainly didn't realize what, uh, what it, what this, uh, older fellow had gone through. Uh, see, it was Chambliss, it was, uh, uh, Winfield, Randolph, and one other, uh, black player on the Yankees back then. And they really didn't realize that. They were, they were astounded that, uh, that uh, you know that that had happened to uh, to players. You had a famous incident with the crowd where the fans were or we call them fans were booing you, and you had a little gesture for the fans. Well, they weren't booing me; they were calling <laughs> me everything I could think of. I, I sort of sometimes I would smile. I didn't let them get get under my skin, so I gave them the finger. And uh, after the ball game, of course, there was a group. I think maybe five or six hundred out there, and we all got bats and. We walked uh, into our bus and took off, and then they started throwing stones at me. You know, the amazing thing is that I think that the Southern players on uh, the team I played uh, with in Danville, Virginia, back in 1953, were more sympathetic uh, and more supportive than some of the Northern players on that team. Why was that? I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, but... Uh, in fact, uh, at every team I played for, I think uh, the Southern uh, ball players were a little bit more aware and helpful. I think that maybe the Northern players just didn't want to get involved, and it might have surprised them too. But I remember Ray Murray when I played in the Texas League. Uh, Ray Murray had caught for the Cleveland uh, Indians, and he was from Tennessee, big old Tennessee boy. Uh, I was having problems in Fort Worth with the kids of all, the three kids about 14 years old. And, of course, I was about 20 then, or so 21, somewhere around there. And I remember Ray coming over, and he called everybody neighbor. He says, neighbor, you want me to go over there and shut those kids up? I said, nope. I'll shut him up with a home run, and I hit a home run. 
Now, as I recall you during your playing career, you exhibited very little emotion on the playing field. Was there a point where the guy who flipped off the fans in the Carolina League changed? Oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I couldn't fight uh, two or 3,000 people. And uh, <laughs> I said, well, there's no sense antagonizing. I'll just antagonize with my bat. And I remember it, uh, we played in uh, uh, another little town down there, Winston-Salem, I think it was. And, and another surprise, here's a guy sitting in this wooden stadium, but uh, sitting in a box seat, shirt and tie, probably one of the leaders of the community. And uh, he's all over me, called me all kind of names. And I just turned around and looked at him. And then uh, when I got to the plate, I hit a home run. And uh, that that's the way you deal with things like that. You, uh, uh, you, you I had no fear of anybody. You know, it's crazy. I didn't have any fear of what was going on down there. And uh, so that was why I was fairly successful there. And that's why I've been fairly successful all my life, because you can't intimidate me. Now, when you made it to the big leagues, were you resigned to the fact that it would be a, a segregated existence off the field, or did you think it would be more uh, integrated? Well, I thought it would be more integrated because here there's a lot of money being made by uh, by uh, professional baseball teams and by hotels and by restaurants and whatever. And as I mentioned, some of the cities we had a problem, uh, probably half the cities. But um, uh, we got through it. Um, I was fortunate enough to uh, be a teammate of Willie Mays, and he helped me quite a bit, not only off the field but on the field by uh, making me aware of what certain pitchers threw and how to play uh, different hitters and, uh, and a lot of things that Willie really helped me with. He's my uh, really my, sort of a, a father to me in baseball. What made you decide that you wanted to write write a book? Well, after I left, uh, I was not happy because of the way I left. Uh, I thought I had been used uh, by a few people to take over baseball. I uh, had first of all, I had a problem with uh, with. Uh, after Bart uh, Giamatti died, I had a problem with the next commissioner, and uh, I had told my uh, executive counsel that uh, I, I had a four-year contract, and this is within the, the first year Bart died, and I said, you know, I'm not getting along with this guy, and uh, two things. Number one, when my four years are up, I'm leaving, or if you could find somebody prior to that, uh, I would leave, uh, and um, they said, well, hang around. We'll see what happens, and... Uh, you know, it, uh, what happened was that, uh, unfortunately, uh, I couldn't get along with that commissioner. No, in fact, uh, uh, probably ownership, uh, uh, I'm not sure they got along either. And uh, for one of the few times in baseball, he was asked to resign. Were you the National League president when uh, Pete Rose got banned for baseball? Yes. Were you part of that decision process, or was it all Faye Vincent? Uh, well, that was... Uh, it was Bar Giamatti was still there, I think. Uh, and it was Bar Giamatti, and we, Bobby Brown and I, sat in on the meetings. But Bart is the one who uh, made that decision. And uh, obviously, he's commissioning you go along with it. Did you agree with that decision? Yes, I agreed with it. What I didn't disagree with, what I disagreed with, was we had a meeting out in uh, Arizona, and uh, I felt that it would be best to to, uh, in a sense, not suspend Pete, but tell Pete uh, to take a little uh, rest and go out and get a great lawyer and uh, and defend yourself against uh, 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 these charges. But it was decided to allow him to continue 
to manage Cincinnati. And uh, obviously, uh, after every game, uh, you know, the game wasn't important. What Pete Rose thought was important, what, uh, and, and that uh, distracted, I think, uh, from uh, from baseball. But Bart made that decision, and uh, you, you know the law rules says you don't bet on baseball. And everybody who's been a part of betting on baseball has been suspended, starting with the Black Sox scandal. Who came up with the title for your book, Uppity? I did. What does that mean, Uppity? Because I'm oh, <laughs> if you don't know what it means and you don't know it, I'm only forty, so I'm okay. Usually there was an epithet that came after that. Oh no, I don't uh, think so. A, a uh, lot of okay, a lot of times people when people would say he's uppity. Well, it, I, I've I've heard uh, I've talked to a lot of people who ask me the same question. They said, well, and a lot of these people are not necessarily black. They said, well, I call my daughter uppity. So I okay. came up with that because uh, I was called up the, by uh, the, uh, the New York Giants general manager, whom I replaced as league president, uh, because I uh, had asked to be traded. When I got out of the Army, I spent two years in the Army. When I got out, Orlando Cepeda was the first baseman. The Giants moved to San Francisco, and Orlando had some great years. And right behind him was Willie McCovey. And I didn't see the op- I didn't think there was an opportunity there for me to play. So I said, train me. And obviously, back then, you had the reserve clause. And a player, especially a player of color, uh, didn't ask to be traded. So he called me up, but, he, but it, I got traded, and, and I had some good years. Yeah, you ended up getting traded to St. Louis. And yes. Had interesting times there. We beat the Cubs all the time, too. Uh, well, who didn't? I let, I, I let, I let Ernie and <laughs> Ernie Banks and... Billy and all those guys know that uh, we 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 it was a good good rivalry Cubs and Cardinals. We gave you Lou Brock though. You yeah, we appreciated that because that's the only time I was able to be in a World Series. Lou was a great player in the Hall of Fame. Uh, uh, yeah, we we appreciate that. Johnny Keene really helped Lou become a, a great player. He turned him loose and reined him in when he had to. But we would not have won in 1964 uh, had. Uh, Bing Devine not traded for Lou Brock. Now, was Johnny Keene the best manager play you played for? You played for some pretty good ones. Well, he was the best manager as far as uh, uh, running a, uh, a game, uh, letting players play. Uh, once he told me I dove for ball and I hurt my shoulder, and uh, he sat me down next to him and says, Look, I want you to play 162 games. And don't die for balls anymore. Don't knock down guys at second base anymore. Try to take them out. Now, this was all new to me because the Cardinals always were hustling. You steal bases, knock a guy down, uh, and whatever. Uh, but uh, he was pragmatic. He said, look, you've got to play 162 games. And that's what I did the next year. I played 162. You had some great teammates through your career. Willie Mays. I mean, you had Stan Musial, Bob Gibson. Bob Gibson. I mean, who was just Bob Gibson? I think he was the best pitcher of all time. Just watching this guy pitch in the highlight films. Well, he he was tough. He gave uh, everything he had. So, uh, he, in fact, the first time I faced him, he hit me. He was mean too, but he didn't throw at you. He just, uh, you know, he brushed you back. Once in a while, he might uh, hit you on the elbow or something. Yeah. After after you got traded to Philadelphia, you face yeah. you face Gibson, and yeah. what, and what happens? Well, as I mentioned, he hit me. He hit me because I like to go out and pull the ball. And he said, uh, he told me when I was played with him, he says, "Don't uh, don't you go out there on me because uh, I'll hit you." And he did. I tell you what, him and Marischal, I don't know who was tougher. 
Well, Marishaw wasn't all that tough. There were some tough guys uh, as far as, as, as throwing at people. Uh, Don Drysdale uh, actually would throw behind you. And, and, and uh, so there were three or four pitchers who really uh, were headhunters. But Gibson was not a headhunter. Uh, he would get you in the body and you'd feel it, right? Well, I don't think he hit that many people. I mean, if you know that you're going to get thrown at, uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're going to tiptoe up there and hope that first pitch is a ball. When we've talked to former players, former Yankees say Mickey Mantle was the best ever. Everybody else says Willie Mays, except for Monty Irvin. He said the best player ever ever was in the Negro Leagues, a certain player called Josh Gibson. Well, I've heard that, and I've read that. Uh, and I, I can't... Uh affirm that or deny that because I've never, I've never, and it didn't see him play, but he didn't get a chance to obviously play in the big leagues. Uh, you can only, uh, judge, uh, by what you're, what you see. And I've never seen a player who could play any better than, uh, Mays. He, uh, he was a 10 at everything. Now you said you never loved baseball because baseball would never love you back. Have, have you, you and baseball had reached a point where you, you like one another? No, baseball is a business to me. You know, here's a kid who uh, who loved football. You know, I, back in the '46s, I'm in Cleveland. I'm I'm in Warren, Ohio, and I'm looking at the Cleveland Browns, Marion Motley, uh, Bill Willis, Otto Graham, uh, and I. I think back then you used it uh, as an opportunity to go to college, play football, baseball. You didn't get scholarships, uh, didn't give scholarships, but uh, we were steel mill people, and uh, the only way you could uh, we couldn't afford to pay to college to pay to go to college, so we uh, played uh, football. Uh, Warren, Ohio, Maslin, Kent McKinley, uh, just a great, great, great alliance, uh, excellent high school football, and uh, baseball was just there. And it's fortunate, I, I, uh, I guess I had a couple of uh, good games and signed to play baseball, but it wasn't a love of baseball. It was the fact that I could play baseball and make money. And uh, back then it wasn't that much, but uh, I got a little bonus. Uh, Leo DeRocher gave me a bonus, and, and I played it. And uh, as a result, I was able to finish two, three years of school, send all my kids to school, and do what I did. But uh, it was a job, and uh, I was fairly good at the job. What was DeRocher like? DeRocher, uh, he was a character. He would, he'd cuss, and he would yell, and he would scream, and... Uh, uh, he uh, really helped me become a better fielder. So he's the one who helped you be, win, what, eight gold gloves, is it? Well, I, I seven, I think. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. He, uh, six he, or seven. he helped you at first base. I don't well, think, he was, no, uh, nobody could have helped you in the outfield, could they? No, I was a terrible outfielder. <laughs> but, but he got me as a kid, as I mentioned, uh, Leo signed me. I went to spring training uh, right out of uh, college and, uh, and I couldn't catch the ball, and he would hit thousands of ground balls to me, thousands of ground balls, made me a better fielder. And uh, I always appreciated that. They called me Leo's little Bobo because he was, uh, he, was he, he really did a good job with me uh, and made me a lot better fielder. Couldn't help me with hitting because he couldn't hit. <laughs> but, but he did make me uh, a better fielder. How did you get into broadcasting? Well, I got a call. I uh, I started broadcasting in St. Louis for KMOX Radio. Big, uh, of course, everybody knows uh, KMOX, big station, sports, and, uh, 
Jack Buck. Jack Buck. Bob Hyland was the general manager. Bob Hyland was the general manager. Uh, there were a lot of guys who came through there, and Bob offered me a job one one uh, winter to uh, come in and learn broadcasting. Not to broadcast, but to learn go out with the uh, PR people, go out with the salesmen, sit in his in his uh, his meetings uh, uh, that he had once a week, and he wanted me to learn broadcasting from the bottom up, and then. Uh, he also put me on the air. I worked with the engineers, put me on the air, uh, uh, and and I did a, a disc jockey show. I was the worst disc jockey, whatever. And then I would substitute for Jack Buck and uh, Harry or somebody who was out. And that's what. That's how I got started. The first interview I did was with Yogi Berra. And when I got traded to the Phillies, uh, they gave me a television show. And I worked at Channel 6 for a while, and then... Uh, the Yankees uh, wanted a, a minority broadcaster, which I found out after I got up there, and uh, Mike Burke hired me to, to do Yankee work, and I was there 18 years. Now, was that interview with Yogi Berra <laughs> the, the best one you ever had? It's the worst one, <laughs> because it was my fault. It wasn't Yogi's fault. Uh, yeah, the first interview I had I did for uh, Kim Wex, I, I asked questions that uh, the answer was yes or no. And uh, that's, I, I would ask questions, maybe, Yogi, uh, do you like uh, uh, managing? Yeah. Uh, you like uh, being with the Yankees? Yeah. And I learned from that because I had five minutes of uh, of yeah and no. And, uh, uh, you know, Highland and the people said, look, you've got to ask these people questions and let uh, so that they'll give you an answer. So that that was a, that was a good experience. But that the only reason he went on was for the transistor radio. Right? Yeah, we gave away a, a little cheap transistor radio, and after all those yeses and noes, he says, "Where's my transistor? Where's my radio?" <laughs> Yogi and I have become pretty close. He's he's about an hour and a half from here. He has a great golf tournament every year, and uh, uh, you know they're from St. Louis, Yogi and Carmen. And uh, we we got along very well. As soon as I would, when I became a Yankee broadcaster, uh, when I would go spring training, I'd take Yogi and Ellie out to dinner, find out what's going on to, uh, down there in spring training. And with the Yankees, you were the play-by-play guy with Phil Rizzuto, the the, uh, the color analyst. Well, no, we all did three innings. Phil did uh, three, I did okay. three, three, and Frank Messer, who worked for the White Sox, I believe, for a right. while, uh, he did three. What was Phil Rizzuto like? Well, if you could keep him in the booth, he was okay. But he he, he liked uh, to do his three innings, and then uh, he would like to go home, which helped me because I'd do my three, and then I'd do his three, and I became a little better broadcaster a little quicker. I went there in 1971, and the Yankees uh, didn't have a a good team at all. And I think that's why Phil and I sort of wanted to divert the attention from the way the Yankees played to uh, sort of it being entertaining in, in the broadcast booth. And then, uh, of course, he would leave sometimes fifth, sixth, seventh inning, and I'd do his work. And when the Yankees finally won in 1976, CBS asked me to uh, to do the broadcast. So I made use of the extra work to become a little bit better. I uh, was a terrible broadcaster the first year. Well, as opposed to being a ball player, your first at bat in the big leagues is a home run. You hit that one in St. Louis for the Giants. Right. And you figure, okay, this is pretty easy, right? No. Oh, you mean uh, batting? Yeah. Oh, no. I, uh, let me tell you what happened there. I, I was up, and the count was 2-2, two and two, 
and a curveball pitcher threw a curveball, I thought, hit the outside corner. Lee Ballenfant, uh, the umpire at that time, uh, said, ball three. As I turned, I started walking toward the the uh, Cardinal dugout in St. Louis because we were playing, I was playing with the Giants against the Cardinals, and uh, Ballenfant, uh, on what I thought was strike three, he said, ball three. So I got back in, and the pitcher threw a fastball, and I just, just cleared the roof in the uh, in St. Louis, but it was all downhill after that because they found out I was a fastball hitter. I couldn't hit the changeup, couldn't hit the curveball. They didn't have sliders in, but I couldn't couldn't hit the ball away. I could really turn on the fastball. Was uh, New York covering the Yankees? Was it really the Bronx Zoo, or was it overblown? Well, you know, I lived I lived sixty miles from the stadium, and after every game, I'd come home. I, I lived uh, on the Delaware River. And uh, I didn't become a part of what was going on in New York. Uh, I did. Uh, I was fairly close to the players, but uh, uh, I, they had a lot of confidence in me. They'd tell me things they shouldn't tell me. I just depended on doing the game and not talking about Sparky Lyle or Thurman Bunsen or or whatever was going on. Uh, Reggie uh, Reggie Jackson or uh, uh, the catcher uh, Munson. Uh, I just did the game. And I think uh, that carried me because uh, a lot. I see a lot of older guys now. Said, "Hey, I learned a lot of baseball uh, while you were broadcasting." And I think that was my job—not to second guess, first guess, or, or whatever—but to uh, teach the game and and try to have fun doing it, hoping uh, hoping that the uh, the listener would have fun. What do you think your legacy is, or what would you like it to be? I don't have one. Uh, I don't think I've done the things that I wanted to do. I, my kids are all. Uh, college graduates, and that that is my main legacy because I didn't finish. Me, I promised my mother I would, but I have five children, and they're all uh, all college graduates. That's my legacy, and uh, you know I'm not worried about uh, uh, you know sports or broadcasting or whatever. That's You're... something I had to do to make a living and to uh, support my family. I'll tell you what, you're a survivor. If you work for the Yankees for all those years for George Steinbrenner, you're doing something right. <laughs> well, we got along. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I kept my. Uh... In fact, George and I were. Uh, I called him Skipper. I never called him George or Mister Steinbrenner. Uh, we were probably a lot closer than people think, uh, mainly because I think Steinbrenner liked people who would tell him no, and I would tell him no. Uh, he would send stuff up into the booth that uh, maybe he didn't like Billy Martin, and he would want one of us to rip Martin or Lou Pinella or stick Michael. And it got to a point he would give it to the PR guys, just take this up to the booth, have him read it, but don't give it to White, because he knew I wasn't going to read it. Well, you had met George many, many years ago when you were in college playing basketball at Hiram. Yeah, at Hiram. <laughs> he was coaching Lockhorn Air Base. And of course, you know, they had... Uh, Access to some of the better uh, people who were drafted into the uh, into the army or the air force, and he coached Lockbourne, and uh, I was playing for Hiram. I was just uh, what I think I think that was my first year, 19 years old, and uh, uh, dribbling down the right side past the uh, Lockbourne bench, and this this arm reaches out and tries to pull me out of bounds, and uh, I, you know I we talked about it, but I know who it was until years later. Uh, we were at Mama Leone's, uh, Phil and I, uh, we were, we were entertaining some, uh, box seat holders. And as I was leaving, this big guy there grabbed me and says, Hey, you know who I am? I said, No. He says, I'm the guy who tried to pull you out of bounds. 
and of course I had known he had, had uh, he was he had taken over the club I think in 1973, uh, but uh, I didn't know that he had managed or he had coached uh, Lockbourne, and he he mentioned that. And I think we would George and I, Skipper and I, got along okay. I'll tell you what was truly amazing is when I read part of your book about you and when Phil Rizzuto was on his deathbed, you sat by him for 30 minutes and two of you just held hands and you didn't say a word. Well, I'd go see Phil. Uh, Phil's family was great. Uh, His wife, Cora, went almost every day. Uh, Yogi Berra went two or three times a week. His daughter would come down from Albany, New York, to see him uh, every week. And uh, I would go maybe once or twice a month. And the last time I went over, uh, the uh, nurse uh, had him sitting in front of a big uh, picture window with the sun coming coming in. Phil was immaculately dressed, shirt, tie, sweater, and he was sleeping. And uh, I went over and sat next to him, and the nurse whispered that, you know, Bill White's here, and he reached his uh, right hand and uh, out, and I grabbed it with my left hand, and we just sat there. Uh, no one said a word. We just sat there for about 20 minutes, and Finally, I I got up and left. Is it safe to say that you're still uppity? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Always will be. Well, you know, uh, I always uh, will be the person that that my uh, mother and grandmother raised. Uh, And uh, I think that's that's important. Uh, I'm trying to find here. Uh, the foreword to my book says to my grandmother, Tamer Young, who taught me to have pride in who I was, and to my mother, Edna May Young, who gave me the confidence in what I could become. Do you think this country's made progress in the time you've been alive? Oh, obviously. Uh, hopefully we're not uh, backtracking. Uh, I'm 78 years old. And born in Florida to sharecroppers. And my grandmother was smart enough to get us the heck out of there. Worked in the steel mills. My uncles worked in the steel mills uh, in Warren. Uh, they eventually married and bought their own homes with savings. Um, and as we, we, that was in the oh, 1930s. I was born in 34, so that's around 37. Why you're not commissioner of baseball, I'll never know. Well, because, uh, first of all, I wasn't, uh, I don't think I was capable of doing that. Uh, I had enough problem with, problems with the 12 and 14 uh, <laughs> guys, guys that I had. And, uh, no, I, I think uh, the commissioner today is more of a businessman than uh, uh, basically uh, what we look at uh, as uh, a commissioner. Uh, but, you know, baseball's making a lot of money. They're doing very well. So as a commissioner, what's he making, $10, 12000000 a year? 
I think he's making 18 or 20. Yeah, yeah. If you'd known that, you might have given it a second thought. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, you know, it's only so far you can go, and I, I'm a little bit too independent, I think, to have been able to do that job. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you, and I look forward to finishing your book. All right. Thank you. Thanks for buying it. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Good. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That was former Giant, Cardinal, Philly, Yankee broadcaster, Bill White. Right, Stay tuned, and we'll be back in a few.